Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Elizabeth Warren has announced she's taking the first step toward running for president. We'll look at how New England will shape the race. Whether it's actually being on the ticket or positioning oneself for a key administrative post, New England will play a decisive role in 2020. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We'll look ahead already to 2020. And we'll look back at a big year in Maine politics, from a new governor to an important vote. Mr. President... I will vote to confirm Judge Kavanaugh. Plus, we'll talk about some of the stories that made us smile in 2018, including this nutty one. It's sort of like your moment. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the the squirrel philosopher. And the secret of living to be 106. But not passing away at 105. (laughs) It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us and happy 2019. On the last day of 2018, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren made an announcement that wasn't a big surprise to those who saw her as a possible challenger to Donald Trump in 2020. And that's why today I'm launching an exploratory committee for president. Meanwhile, another high-profile progressive from New England, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, is facing complaints surrounding his 2016 campaign from women who allege the candidate mishandled staff complaints about sexual harassment and pay disparity. So I certainly apologize to any woman who felt that she was not treated appropriately. And of course, if I run, we will do better uh, next time. He said he's considering running in 2020. Kalila Brown-Dean is an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. She's been closely following our region's role in this race that is already underway. Kalila, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Great to be back. First of all, what do you make of Elizabeth Warren's announcement, especially so very early on? It's been amazing to hear the response to the announcement, with some people being very excited that she's thrown her name into the ring so early and people already saying, no, 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 she's not the candidate that we want. But what I think is most important is that there's a difference between forming an exploratory committee and fully committing to running. If Democrats want to win, the best thing that they can do is know early on who the real contenders are so that they can focus their outreach efforts. She has progressive credentials, and she's been already talking about them. Here's a little bit from the video announcement she released on New Year's Eve. Today, corruption is poisoning our democracy. Politicians look the other way, while big insurance companies deny patients life-saving coverage, while big banks rip off consumers, and while big oil companies destroy this planet. How well does that message play across America, do you think? I think that message can play better if it is broken down in a more day-to-day way. And what I mean by that is that there are people across this country that are struggling, working-class, middle-class families. So don't just talk to them about the big banks. Talk about what that means for them and their ability to get a loan to purchase their first home. What does it mean for their ability to start a small business? This can't be an election that's you know just popular to policy wonks. It has to be how do we reach the everyday people 
people and really redefine what it means to be progressive. The term progressive means so many things to different people. Warren and other contenders have to be very clear about their message. You also mentioned some of her stumbles along the way. Uh, Warren released a video called Elizabeth Warren's Family Story back in October. Let's listen. The president likes to call my mom a liar. What do the facts say? The facts suggest that you absolutely have a Native American ancestor in your pedigree. This is Elizabeth Warren addressing the name-calling that Donald Trump has been doing for quite some time and trying to put to rest, finally, the question of whether or not she has Native American heritage. Almost everyone who watched this, uh, who follows politics, Kalila said, this probably wasn't the best way to go about handling this particular issue. It was one of the worst ways to handle it. Showing your DNA and showing your ancestry in order to prove that Donald Trump is a liar means nothing to voters and to people across this country. If you really want to affirm your heritage, if you want to affirm the importance of that heritage to your identity and how you govern, then let's talk about the disproportionate number of American Indian women who suffer from domestic violence. Let's talk about the disproportionate number of American Indians who are killed at the hands of law enforcement at a rate that is higher than any other racial and ethnic group in this country. Identity politics isn't just about saying, this is a group that I belong to or that I have some kind of ancestral link. It is about understanding how those identities matter politically and in terms of policy impact. I think, Kalila, it's fair to say when it comes to tackling issues of race and ethnicity, both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders from Massachusetts and Vermont, two white candidates who are up there in age and are not part of a a young, new, progressive Congress, they seem to have stumbled time and time again when dealing with these issues. And it's hurt them not just with black and Latino voters, but with an awful lot of progressive voters, too. Exactly. And I think what's important for any candidate, regardless of their background, is to be able to say, I don't know, to be able to acknowledge their blind spots, and more importantly, to be able to say, I don't know, but I'm willing to listen to those who do. So that it doesn't mean that you just hire a press secretary or hire a media outreach person or an outreach to a particular community, but that you're willing to take a step back and say, the world that we live in today is not the world that we lived in when I was first elected to office. Vermont may not be like the rest of the U.S. Massachusetts may not have the same issues that people in Kentucky care about. But as a politician, I am willing to incorporate those voices and be able to move forward. Instead of getting defensive, let's be inclusive. Now, Bernie Sanders has not said yet whether or not he will run in 2020. Here he was speaking with Reverend Al Sharpton on MSNBC in November, saying he's looking at running in 2020. And and I want to make sure that when I make that decision, if I decide to run, that I have concluded, in fact, that I am the strongest candidate who can defeat Donald Trump. We've got some great people out there who are thinking of running. They are my friends. Uh, and I've got to make that decision that... Uh, based on my background, based on my past, uh, based on my ideas, that in fact I am the candidate uh, that can defeat Trump. What do you make, Kalila Brown-Dean, of Bernie Sanders thinking about getting back into a race that's going to include not just Elizabeth Warren now, but an awful lot of very different types of Democrats coming from different parts of the political spectrum? 
it takes a great deal of humility as a politician to be able to say, my goal is not just for me to win, but for the ideals and the communities that I believe in to win. And whoever can be the best candidate to make that happen should be the person to emerge. So personally, I don't think Bernie Sanders should run because of some of the things that we've talked about, about the electorate, the diversity of that electorate, and needing to have a very strong ticket that can not just put forth the best people, but really have the best shot at changing things in our country. When we wanted to talk to you about this uh, early race for president, we were thinking that another potential candidate might be in the race, Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts. He he then decided in early December he wasn't going to be part of this race. Here was talking to WBUR's Morning Edition. It's one thing to realize that you can't necessarily um, shield your family and loved ones uh, uh, from those cruelties. It's a whole other thing to realize that in a demanding campaign, you can't even comfort them. Deval Patrick, a very popular former governor of Massachusetts, an African-American governor of Massachusetts, and he's someone who many people thought might get into this race early on. Are you surprised that he's not? I'm not. I think that for many people, our country today feels colder. It feels more hostile. And whether that hostility manifests at a synagogue in Pittsburgh or manifests in a state legislature in Vermont, people understand that often their very existence is viewed as a threat and a challenge to others. And to realize that, you know, Patrick's first calling is to his family and to invest in them. That says something about the climate that we're in. Understanding what it's going to take to win in 2020 and also what it will bring out and mobilize in terms of opposition is something that every candidate who is serious about running for president should consider. Is there a chance any other New England politicians will get into this race in 2020? I think that we should understand the importance of New England in this race, whether it's actually being on the ticket or positioning oneself for a key administrative post. New England will play a decisive role in 2020. Kalila Brown-Dean is an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. 2018 was a big year for politics, both nationally and in each of the New England states. But when looking back at the big stories of 2018, well, we just kept coming back to one state, Maine. From ranked choice voting to Susan Collins' vote in support of the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, there were some really big stories from the state. Steve Missler's here to review the year in Maine politics with us. He's chief political correspondent and statehouse bureau chief for Maine Public Radio. Steve, welcome back to Next. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's start with the outgoing governor, Paula Page, leaving office after two terms. Can you characterize exactly what Paula Page meant to Maine politics and, and how he shaped the state? Well, I would describe him as consequential and and hugely so. You know, he came into Maine in 2010 as sort of this unknown figure. He was a mayor of a small town where he'd sort of made his mark there and rose in a really crowded Republican primary field out of nowhere. He spent almost no money and seemed to ride what at the time was this sort of Tea Party wave that swept him into the governor's mansion after a very, very close race. He won with a very narrow plurality, which would one day become the impetus for the ranked choice voting law, which I'm assuming we'll talk about a little bit later. Once he got there, he ruled... Not as if he had won by a narrow margin, but as if he had had a statewide mandate 
to push conservative policies. When he did that, he he benefited in one way in the sense that he had Republican-controlled legislature. But he actually made a lot of Republicans really nervous because they were trying to hold those majorities. And him pushing very conservative and polarizing policies alienated him from some members of his own party. And that tension between him and his own party would continue to this day. And it really created a lot of some of the big news stories that we encountered over the last eight years, which were paralysis in the state legislature and the first government shutdown in almost 30 years. I mean, these were all a result of the fact that he never was able to sort of unite his entire party. He commanded loyalty from some members. And he also was a very pugnacious political combatant, unafraid to uh, say what he wanted uh, without repercussion in most cases. And uh, that was very different for Maine politics, where it's usually um, we had a sort of a reputation as sort of a collaborative and people were polite to one another. Paul LePage was not that. He went right after his enemies and uh, right for the jugular. So we've talked about Paul LePage, who, as you say, was a very different type of politician for Maine. The type of politician that we normally associate with Maine is the other big national figure who had a big year in 2018, Maine's Senator Susan Collins. She's seen as part of a a centrist movement for the last several years. She's someone who is able to work on both sides of the aisle, and she's someone who invariably, when there was a tight vote in the Senate, people would look to to her because she would often be a tie-breaking vote. Something seemingly changed with Susan Collins this past year, Steve, and I'm wondering if you can describe exactly what did change with her and her relationship with the Republican Party and the president over 2018. She's been known as a, a centrist Republican, willing to to work on both sides of the aisle. Um, but in th- in this time, especially with the election of Donald Trump, what we are seeing is that people who operate in that center have less real estate to do so. And I think that that's become a real problem for her. I mean, on the right, she faces constant pressure to basically do what President Trump wants her to do. And these votes are very unpopular with the left. And so I just think that she has is under enormous pressure to do from both sides. Uh, the left is increasingly mobilized to oppose Donald Trump. And so any sort of vote in his, in his favor is considered um, almost treasonous on, from, from their perspective. And on the right, it's the same. And so that really shrinks that middle ground that she's so accustomed to occupying. We have already seen here that there are Democrats waiting in the wings potentially to challenge her. And that is very different from before where it was actually hard to field Democratic candidates to take her on because they knew they would lose. And now they don't see that. They sense there's blood in the water with Susan Collins and there are will be candidates lining up to take her on, especially if there's an erosion in her favorability, which we've seen already, at least since the uh, her vote for Brett Kavanaugh. Mr. President, I will vote to confirm Judge Kavanaugh. Steve, is this one of the things that long term Susan Collins will be remembered for? I believe it will. And I believe that um, like it or not, Whatever Judge Kavanaugh does on the bench in the Supreme Court, his votes you know, will be linked to her in some way. 
So I do believe that that this was a watershed moment for her. We'll see how it pans out in terms of whether or not there are any controversial decisions, you know, before 2020 when she's up for re-election, assuming she runs. But if there are, they will they will be people will be ready to remind everybody that Susan Collins voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. So let's finish with the last big issue in Maine state politics that made national headlines this year. Ranked choice voting came to the 2018 midterms, and it came in a very controversial race, Steve. Tell us exactly what happened in the second district. Right. So the second district, there was it was a four-person race where Bruce Poliquin, the Republican incumbent, had a really formidable Democratic challenger in Jared Golden, and there were two independents in the race. And of course, ranked choice voting, where voters can rank their candidates in order of preference, requires that the winner has a, a, as a majority. And so if no candidate obtains a majority on election night, it goes to this runoff process. And that's exactly what happened in the second congressional district race. Bruce Poliquin actually had a lead on election night. But then once we went to the, the ranked choice tabulation or the runoff, he lost. And so that really sharpened what had already been some very stark political divisions over ranked choice voting. This reform had been introduced and widely embraced, I would say, or at least people were curious about it across the political spectrum. But that result, which ended up benefiting Jared Golden, who's now the congressman-elect, and taking out Bruce Poliquin has deepened these political divisions over the law. Steve Missler is chief political correspondent and State House bureau chief for Maine Public Radio. He was here to talk about this enormous year in Maine politics. Steve, as always, thanks so much for joining us and happy holidays. You too. My pleasure. Coming up, a look at how police policy affects undocumented immigrants in Vermont. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. A few weeks ago on our show, we heard about a mobile Mexican consulate in Vermont that was set up to help migrant workers who provide an awful lot of the labor for the state's agriculture industry. Despite a state policy that discourages local law enforcement from turning undocumented immigrants over to federal immigration officials, there is still a big risk for these workers. As VPR's John Dillon reports, a recent case shows that state police and migrant justice advocates interpret the fair and impartial policing policy very differently. It's arraignment day in the criminal division of Addison Superior Court in Middlebury. But one defendant, a 47-year-old farm worker named Oman Lopez, is a no-show. Mr. Lopez does not appear. There's a citation in the file. It does appear to bear the defendant's signature having been signed by him. This is a DUI and leaving the scene. Jason, what's state's request? Judge Allison Arms issues an arrest warrant, but Lopez is already in custody. He's in a federal detention center in New Hampshire, awaiting deportation back to his native Costa Rica. Lopez was arrested in early October for driving while drunk and for leaving the scene of an accident. The facts of his arrest are not in dispute. But after his arrest, a state police officer called Immigration and Customs Enforcement 
And that night, an ICE agent picked him up at the New Haven, Vermont State Police Barracks. In this case, a Vermont State Police Barracks was turned into a holding cell for Trump's deportation agents. Will Lambeck is with Migrant Justice, a group that advocates for migrant farm workers. He says turning Lopez over to ICE runs counter to the state's model fair and impartial policing policy. This is precisely the type of outcome that the fair and impartial policing policy is intended to prevent. But the state police have not updated their policy as required by uh, multiple versions of state statute. Lambeck says the reason why the Olman Lopez case is important is that undocumented people in Vermont are often reluctant to call law enforcement or even 911 for a medical emergency because they're afraid they'll get turned over to ICE. Olga is an undocumented farm worker who says she's been afraid to call an ambulance during a medical emergency. One of her children also gets asthma attacks, but Olga says she's been too scared to take her to the hospital. So she said that uh, there were plenty of occasions she needed to call an ambulance for an emergency. She heard that even the police is turning people to immigration, and that could, you know, if she calls for an emergency, maybe police is going to be involved. So she's been really afraid, and at her household, everybody's been afraid to reach out to an ambulance or to the hospital or the police. I think they're confusing the facts here, and they're aware of that. Lieutenant Gary Scott is the director of fair and impartial policing for the state police. He says migrant justice, not state police, is creating the atmosphere of fear. I think there's two different things going on here. If people are in violation of the law and they are arrested, there are consequences. Uh, but if you're a victim or a witness, and our policies clearly state that, we're going to help you and we're not going to ask those types of questions. And that's been in place for a significant amount of time, many, many years. Scott says Lopez was stopped for leaving the scene of an accident at a convenience store. A police report says he initially showed a blood alcohol level of about twice the legal limit. So in compliance with our policy, he was under arrest. Uh, the troopers had the discretion to make a call to federal authorities if they want to further investigate what the status of this visa was. And it was learned then that he had overstayed. So the processing was completed when Border Patrol came. The key word here is discretion. Scott says under both the state police protocols and the model fair and impartial policing policy, the officer was still allowed to call ICE after the arrest. He says this case is the only one in the last two years in which ICE was contacted after the state police stopped an undocumented person. We are training our members to take everything into consideration when they're doing that, but ultimately it comes down to discretion of arrest and what are the extenuating circumstances of that arrest. But Migrant Justice says the officer's discretion in this case, which led to his decision to call ICE, shows the weaknesses in the state police policy. Will Lambeck again. Under the state's policy, Ulman should not have been referred to federal immigration authorities. But the Vermont police's policy doesn't have the language, it doesn't have the provisions that speak to these practices. And that's why this trooper was able to call uh, a deportation agent up and say, hey, I have this person in custody. Federal law on this issue is clear. The state cannot prevent an officer from calling ICE. So what the officer did here was technically allowed. Migrant justice is pushed to make the policy more restrictive on information sharing. 
Attorney General T.J. Donovan says he's working with state police on adopting the state's model policy. He says he can't second-guess the call made in the Oman Lopez case. And I think when you're talking about a criminal investigation, that's a little bit different than some other interactions police would have. But I think the intent behind the policy is the same. You're really encouraging folks uh, perhaps not to call but you can't prohibit the call, and if you make the call, to be mindful of some of the consequences. Meanwhile, Lopez is in detention, separated from his wife and three children, as his case works its way through the federal deportation process. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. Energy can be tough to understand. When we flip on a light switch, we know the lights should come on, but we might not know where the power comes from or why exactly it costs what it costs. A few weeks ago on the show, we explained how ISO New England, the region's power grid, works to keep the lights on and also the many threats to the energy market they operate. Today, New Hampshire Public Radio's Andy Ropeak profiles another group you might not have heard of, the New England Power Pool, or NEPOOL. In New England, much of the energy costs are controlled by this select group of stakeholders. But as Annie reports, Neepool is now facing criticism for a lack of transparency and for decisions that could be raising the already high cost of energy in our region. To understand why Neepool exists and what it has to do with your electric bills, we need to go back in time to 1965. It's a cold November evening, and New York City's WABC radio is playing the hits during rush hour. The frequency starts to wobble as high demand for electricity strains the power grid, made up of separate utilities with their own systems, from Toronto to New York to New England. Finally, somewhere in Ontario, a fail-safe trips, sparking a chain reaction. The lights are dimming in the studio. You wouldn't believe what's going on in the studio, folks. Before this DJ or the region's utilities know what's happening, the grid goes down in a cascade of overloaded transmission lines and automatic shutoffs. An estimated 30 million Northeast residents are plunged into darkness. NBC's Robert Abernathy reported the news. The Northeastern United States tonight suffered its worst electric power failure in history. There were massive traffic jams and confusion, especially at train stations. The blackout of 1965 happened largely because the grid was too disjointed to easily absorb a human error. So when the lights came back on in the morning, the region's utilities decided things had to change. Here's New Hampshire's utility ratepayer advocate, Don Kreese. They built a facility in Holyoke, Massachusetts, and each individual utility surrendered operational control of its transmission and generation facilities to this central dispatching facility, a big control room in Holyoke. And to facilitate that, they created an organization called the New England Power Pool. Neepool ran the Northeast grid that way for a few decades. Then federal regulators proposed taking the model a step further. They wanted to set up new neutral nonprofits to manage each region's grid and energy market and to encourage more open competition with the big utilities. This gave us the Independent System Operator of New England, or the ISO. They're the current tenant in that Holyoke control room, and their only job is to keep the lights on. But Neepool didn't go away. It remained as a kind of trade group, and it kept a lot of power. It makes recommendations to the ISO on things like energy prices or the need for new transmission lines. Don Kreese says this means major decisions about energy in New England can still be made by industry. 
we rely on markets to assure that the electricity grid is operated in the public interest. The markets are extremely complicated. The market rules are extremely complicated. And the market rules are debated at Nepool. Kreese is actually a member of Nepool. Electricity customers and public officials do have a seat at the table, but Nepool's voting structure is weighted to give them less of a voice than, say, big utilities and power plant owners. Then there's what Kreese calls the jump ball provision. If Nepool members disagree with an ISO proposal, they can submit their own idea to the federal government, and regulators will basically pick between the two. And that makes Nepool more powerful than the other stakeholder advisory boards at other regional transmission organizations around the country. That is a big deal. Kreese and other critics say several times in recent years, federal regulators have favored Nepool proposals that wound up costing customers, helping make electric rates in New England some of the highest in the country. Kreese says a lot of these market changes could be seen as gold plating, adding endless backup measures and redundancies in the name of making the grid reliable. But members of the electric industry tend to think the structure in New England works just fine. Bill Quinlan is president of New Hampshire's biggest utility, Eversource. At a recent industry conference, he told me they're just trying to avoid a catastrophe like the blackout of 1965. We don't believe we are overly conservative in the way we approach uh, reliability. We never want to have an instance where the grid can't deliver the energy needed to keep a resident's lights on or a business going forward. But there's one other problem that critics point to. The people that use that service aren't in the room when Nepool decides how much reliability is worth charging them for. Neither are news outlets. Nepool's meetings are closed to the public. That doesn't sit well with Tyson Slocum, a lobbyist with the group Public Citizen. Under the current Nepool process, it is impossible for the public or for journalists to understand who originally came up with a market reform proposal. On top of that, he says lobbyists for industry are allowed to sell the details they hear in those private meetings to outside parties. Slocum has joined media outlets and other watchdogs to put two complaints before federal regulators about Nepool's public access policies. One is about whether an energy industry journalist can join Nepool. The other says the closed-door policy violates federal law. Nepool's secretary and lawyer David Dute declined to be interviewed on tape for this story while those federal complaints are still unresolved. But he told me in writing that Nepool posts many of their records online and routinely talks to reporters about new market proposals. I asked if Nepool's public access policies and weighted voting structure could allow utilities to prioritize profits over keeping costs down for customers. Doot characterized this as a claim that Nepool members and federal regulators, quote, collectively have all been ineffective in ensuring balanced consideration of customers' interests. He continued, Nepool rejects that claim. But Tyson Slocum says Nepool's approach is unusual. Across the country, other regional grid operators and stakeholder groups let the public come to meetings and ask questions. This is a serious breach of public trust committed by Nepool here. They are tasked by federal regulators to operate the only official electricity policy um, forum for the entire region. And they are saying members of the general public have no entitlement to attend or understand that process. And that's just deeply upsetting to me. 
The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is still considering the transparency challenges against Neepool. The cases could decide whether the organization must open its doors. And they could set a broader precedent about how much control federal regulators have over the groups they've tasked with keeping the lights on. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek. Coming up, stories that made us smile in 2018. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. It's our first episode of 2019, and we're taking the opportunity to look back at the past year and some of the stories from around New England that, well, that made us smile in 2018. Something that stood out to us was a series that VPR's Vermont Edition did about the most interesting Vermonters. The people profiled ranged from a farmer who hands out thousands of roses every year to an octogenarian who drinks maple syrup to stay energized. Rickson Gary produced the series, and he joins us to tell us more about these interesting Vermonters. Rick, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. What gave you the idea for the series? Well, I've been to all of Vermont's 251 cities and towns and met a lot of people that way. I've been at VPR for 11 years. And the one thing I keep hearing are these wonderful stories of these interesting Vermonters. And at some point, you finally say, I've got to get out there with my microphone and start recording them. Let's actually hear a little bit uh, from one of the people you profiled. You mentioned Warren Patrick. Tell us a little bit about him and his story. Yeah, 106 years old. And when I showed up, uh, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, this could be a non-starter because he had a two-page single-spaced history that he wanted to read. He did not want to be interviewed. And so I didn't know what to do. And I thought, well, okay, we'll let him read. And and here's Warren reading from his history. In the last 106 years, I have driven a horse and wagon and taken the horse to a blacksmith who would remove the worn shoes and nail on new shoes. I have ridden on trolley cars, which were like huge buses. They were operated in the larger cities and ran on steel tracks. I have owned a Model T Ford car, which my brother bought for me for $25. Now, that went on for nine and a half minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he is 106 years old. He has a big story to tell. That's a long story to tell. Absolutely, 106. But but this was this is how how you first encountered him. This this long long story. Right, and he didn't want to answer any of my questions. But after reading his history, he did open up, and I said, I I just have a few more questions to ask. And then he really told his story. Um, I asked him what the best thing is about being 106. Here's what he had to say: But not passing away at 105. <laughs> The best thing is that I can recall all this and uh, look back on it with the satisfaction that I've lived a good life. And and the best and another thing is to know what's going on in the world or in the country. That, that's always interesting to me. And what was really interesting was uh, he told me that the real key to living a long, happy life is staying active. As a matter of fact, John, two hours after I left him, he was out building a snowman. 
Wow. You know, it's so interesting when you meet someone like that who has this incredible long story to tell. There's so much history, but I love the idea that you get into what keeps him energized today, what what actually makes you alive and vibrant at 106, because that is something we probably all want to bottle and find out a little bit more about. No doubt. And he did invite me back uh, when he turned 107, which he is now, so I have to go find him. The other thing that was great was by the time I left, uh, he was telling me jokes uh, that were making his daughter blush. But you can tell that we really had bonded and become friends. (laughs) Now, another person you profiled was Henry Weinstock. Could you tell us about him? Yeah, this is a more poignant story. Henry was six years old, living in Belgium, uh, Jewish, uh, with his father, and About two hours after they were with cousins, uh, the cousins were taken to Auschwitz. And Henry and his father uh, just missed being taken off to Auschwitz to this concentration camp. And the interesting thing, Henry, his father, uh, the Jews who were living in Europe didn't know real the real gravity of what was going on in these concentration camps. Here's Henry explaining that. We had no idea at that time that there were concentration camps, that in these concentration camps there were people being deported, children, women, anybody who was deported usually was condemned to death. I mean, the idea that there were concentration camps where there were gas chambers, crematoriums, that to us was inconceivable that such a phenomenon existed. It's only after World War II that many of us learned about that. Henry and his father tried to flee Belgium for France. They weren't allowed in. They tried to get to the U.S. They were a little late in doing that. So finally, Henry's father took him to a Catholic priest, had him baptized, and he was sent to a Catholic school with 82 other Jewish children raised by nuns in Belgium. And he told me a little bit about what that was like. We all had to change our names. In fact, I have a list of the 83 children with their authentic name vis-a-vis their baptized name. My name was not Henry Weinstock, but it was uh, Henri Albert Gérard. Very French. Sometimes we would forget. You know, children don't have the better memories. And uh, we were very proud with our new names. The saddest part is that we were completely incommunicado with our parents. That to a child in the scale of human feeling is more terrible than anything else. You really get the sense of what it was like as a child viewing World War II on European soil from Henry. What were some of your big takeaways from speaking to these interesting Vermonters with these amazing life stories? Uh, One is perseverance. No matter what has happened in their lives, they have carried on and for the most part carried on very happily and positively. Uh, The other is that message we heard from Warren, keeping active, staying uh, nimble both mentally and physically. And then the the best I loved was uh, the humility of all of them. I would show up to talk to them and they'd all kind of wonder why do you want to talk to me? What's so interesting about me? But the stories really were compelling. Rick Singer is a producer for Vermont Edition. You can find links to these interviews with Warren and Henry and the other Vermonters he spoke to at nextnewengland.org. Rick, thanks so much for bringing us these stories and, and good luck in 2019. Can't wait to hear more. Oh, my pleasure. And I can't wait either. We also met some New Englanders with very interesting jobs, including bridge tenders, those people who operate the drawbridges and swing bridges that help both car and boat traffic pass through. 
Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill brought us this story, and he joins us now. Patrick, welcome back to Next. Hi, John. Why would you go searching for bridge tenders, first of all? Well, uh, I had always heard about uh, these public works employees down in New Haven who are basically uh, the gentlemen who sit up in houses uh, above the three bridges that the city operates. And I always just wanted to go out and check, check them out and see kind of, you know, what they do. It's sort of this mysterious job that a lot of people don't really even know exists. (laughs) And again, they're tending bridges that have to move in some way, shape, or form. So explain what their job is first. Right. So uh, these folks essentially have to be in the bridge to uh, open it for commerce. If there's an oyster boat that needs to go through, uh, someone needs to be there to swing that bridge out of the way or move it up. Um, or if the Coast Guard needs to get through to respond to an emergency, someone has to be uh, manning these bridges at all time to to ensure that they can get access. So if you live anywhere in maritime New England, you're probably used to swing bridges and draw bridges, bridges that, well, you might have to sit at a traffic light as they go up and down, but but you're used to these things. You're used to them, um, but I think a lot of people kind of think, well, the computer probably does it. But no, there's actually someone up there. There's someone who's actually up there using their eyeballs uh, to move these bridges, um, one person being uh, Maurice Little. He works in New Haven. And um, I actually asked him about the first time his eyeballs sort of were in charge on one of those bridges. It was scary. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I started over here on Grand Avenue. You got to be able to line the streets and the lines up. After you watch and say, okay, I know I need to let the button go once once the angle of the bridge hits right here. And then everything kind of lines itself up. But after that, it's, it's, it's a piece of cake. That is so interesting, Patrick. It's one of those jobs that really requires someone to... To use their eyes, that's a that's a pretty important job, but he doesn't probably have to do it that much throughout the course of the day. He doesn't have to do it too much uh, throughout the day. And actually, uh, we have one more uh, little soundbite here from Maurice where he was talking about uh, sort of his wife's take on his job. My wife, she knows. She said, oh, your job is boring. No, it's not boring. I'm used to it. It's, I, I enjoy my job. So, you know, it can it can be slow, um, sure. but uh, a lot of these bridge centers do really enjoy it. They're really committed to the work. Um, and it's also a job that, while it's very important, it's not the most kind of hectic thing that someone would be uh, enduring every single day. Uh, bridge tender Mike Johnson is another person who I spoke with, and he kind of speaks to that. I'm not stressed out every day, going home stressed out, and this definitely takes that edge off, which is... These days, it's something to be said about. So you started working on this story in part because you were doing a, a series of stories about about rivers, about, you know, the waterways that connect all the places that you cover here in Connecticut. Right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things to me has been uh, as someone who's been covering uh, the environment in Connecticut for a few years now, not not a, a ton of time, but but long enough, I'm starting to see the rivers kind of change a little bit, which is sort of interesting. And um Earlier this year, myself and Ryan Karen King, uh, our visuals reporter here, uh, went around visiting a bunch of rivers in the state. We actually went out to the Wild and Scenic Eight Mile River. Uh, this is the southernmost uh, Wild and Scenic River in New England uh, here in Connecticut. And when we were there, um, we actually looked at a place where there used to be an 80-year-old dam, this historic Ed Bills Pond dam that was there. It got removed and the whole landscape had changed. And it's been so interesting just over the past few years just to see kind of how how – how our built environment going away is kind of changing the natural environment that we're living here. The, the built environment going away when it comes to, to old dams, the built environment building up in some other places, and the water levels changing. There's an awful lot about the rivers 
that you can that you can watch to really tell how our environment right in front of us is changing over even the course of five or ten years. Absolutely, yeah, and it's I mean it's one of the things that I love about my job is being able to go out and explore sort of the interactions between our natural world and uh, the things that we put in it and what we take out of it. So that's you know stuff I'm hoping to do more of in 2019. Patrick Scahill is an environmental reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Here's a clip from another story that made us smile this year. Uh, I'm a selectman in my town, and I'm active in the Masons. So, like, all the people I know in the Masons and the people I know in the town are all asking me, what's going on? What's going on with all these squirrels? It's and, sort of like your moment. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm the, the squirrel philosopher. But uh, <laughs> That's NHPR reporter Brita Green and Scott Borthwick who runs a wildlife control company in New Hampshire, talking about what became the Year of the Squirrel. Brita joins us now to tell us more about her reporting. Brita, welcome back to Next. Thanks so much for having me. So first of all, there are so many squirrels around this year. You told a few stories about them. What exactly was happening? Yeah, it's funny. The explanation is like, it's very simple, almost unsatisfactorily so. <laughs> um, it's basically just that... The past couple of years have been really strong acorn crops. So the squirrel populations boomed. And then this year, there weren't as many acorns. And um, the squirrels were getting really, really hungry and running around looking for food. So we were seeing a lot of them um, running across roads and ending up as roadkill, which is why we noticed <laughs> that there were so many squirrels dead this year. So this wasn't one of those stories in which a wildlife biologist called you up with some sort of a tip. It was just a story that everyone kind of noticed. There's a lot of squirrels around. Yeah, I remember, you know, it was it really became unavoidable, especially in an area like this where you just everyone is driving a lot to get anywhere. Um, but I think it, it all started for us. Our news director came in one day and said, hey, has anyone else noticed that there's a lot of dead squirrels around? And he thought like potentially that there was some kind of, you know, like, disease going on or something like that. But everyone, no one else had really noticed it at that point. And everyone was like, this is not a story. And then we started asking around and <laughs> it was like the thing people were talking about. And it kind of ballooned from there. So for the story that, that we wanted to, to listen back to, you traveled with Scott Borthwick to remove squirrels from people's homes. Maybe you could describe what your day with him was like. Yeah. So um, we started pretty early. So he picked me up. He has this um, small white pickup truck and um, it's covered in the back. It's where he puts the animals sometimes when he's taking them away from properties. And um, the first call that we went to was a couple that owned a really beautiful sort of turn of the century old brick house. It was in Vermont, just over the Connecticut River from where I am in New Hampshire. And I didn't totally know what we were getting into. I mean, what I knew was that they had some squirrel complaints. So we, we parked the car and went up to the door, knocked on the door, and um, the homeowner, her name's Carol Little, answered the door. And she just sort of ran through the problem. Just tell me what's going on and where. Okay. So we've had recurring problems with what I'm told are flying squirrels. Okay. And I can show you outside. Yep. We should look at that. Um, I don't know whether the great what the gray squirrels are doing this year. We have tons of them, as you know. Right. Right. So she was a little perplexed, as you can hear, and Scott had a very thorough evaluation set up going. So we walked all around the exterior of the house. He was looking for holes, sort of access points along the walls or like places under the roof where the squirrels could be getting in. And then we went inside and looked at all the fireplaces and then up through they had, you know, like one of those old drop down doors to the attic. And he climbed up on a ladder and looked around in there with a flashlight. And he could tell immediately that she had a squirrel problem and, and 
he can tell by looking at sort of the types of remains that they're leaving in the house, what types of squirrels they are. So he was able to sort of diagnose that. And then he said, you know, I'll send you a quote. And we hit the road. He had a lot more to do that day. From there, we were driving and he actually got, we were headed to another call in Vermont and he got an urgent message from someone who had seen a flying squirrel sort of like soar across her living room. And she thought she had trapped it in the bathroom, but she wasn't totally sure. And she had just come home from chemotherapy. She was um, struggling with cancer and she was just exhausted and just wanted someone to come over and and deal with the problem. So we went over there and um, went into her bathroom where for a while, Scott couldn't figure out where the squirrel was. So he was sort of like rustling the shower curtain and things like that and couldn't find it and thought maybe it wasn't even in there. But then he reached um, into this high... um, shelf where she was storing her wigs um, and he found the squirrel way back there in a in a wig bag and he sort of brought it out from the bathroom she was sitting in the living room watching tv he was in this bag he was in the bag and he's in the bag right now oh good and you're going to get rid of it i'm taking him out so is this this bag something you need i think it had a i think it had a the hair piece in it or yeah. something but where are you going to put him out there? Well, I was going to maybe put him in a trap, but uh, it's going to be hard to get him out of the bag and into a trap, so I might just let him loose, if that's okay. No. I that's, want him... You are, <laughs> I want him across rivers, mountains, <laughs> up in the sky. I don't care where he is, but you can't. All right, let me see what I can do. I just love that, Brita, so much. This woman is so exasperated, and the, the idea that she wants to scroll as far away from her home as possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, actually, you know, I think she was right because after we walked around her, the exterior of her house and there were plenty of holes where that squirrel could have probably gotten right back in. You know, you developed the squirrel beat uh, in part because there were just this. This is a story to tell. There were so many squirrels this year, but it was a year in which you spent a lot of time reporting on things like campus sexual violence and opioid addiction. I, I guess I, I wonder how it felt to have something that was kind of fun and outdoorsy to cover in a year when there was so much bad news to cover. Yeah, it's true. And you know what I loved about this story was it was such a unifier. It was like the thing people were talking about no matter what your political leaning was, no matter what you know you were into. And it was a story, you know, like so often I, it, you you guys do a lot of environmental reporting on your show. I think that often it, this, some of these environmental stories are like hard to connect with. And this was such a clear, like immediate illustration of how things play out in the world of nature. And then we interact with them as humans in, in sort of interesting ways. Brita Green is a reporter for NHPR. Brita, thanks for all the great stories all this year, and, and thanks for joining us, too. Thanks so much. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, you can be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. It does help, so thank you. And if you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England, I'd appreciate it. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski, and our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Lori Mack. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Public's Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.